for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy 31. We've been in a series entitled Shaped for a number of months now. This will be the 26th sermon over about an eight-month period of time that we've been in the book of Deuteronomy. And the whole aim of our Shaped series has simply been uh, shaped for glory through mission. How God shapes a life to bring glory to Himself through that life as we follow Him in mission. And one of the catchphrases we've used throughout this series has been that we're cultivating, our aim is to cultivate a whole life obedience through a wholehearted allegiance. We want to see our lives consumed with obedience unto God by faith because our hearts are consumed with His love for what He's done for us, for who He is in every way. And so we'll wrap that up today. And, and as I considered the last four chapters of Deuteronomy, chapters 31 to 34, there's so much material in these chapters and we could spend a considerable amount of time. But really what I want to do for us today is just to provide an overview uh, to show kind of the role that these chapters play in the book of Deuteronomy, but also the role that they play in the whole redemptive historical narrative of God's salvation to mankind. And so as we look at this today, understand we're going to be doing a flyby and then we're going to come back and drop into a few verses. And I just want to help us understand one big idea as we capture the whole of this series today. And that big idea is simply this, that glory comes through mission when Jesus remains our center. That, that glory comes through mission when Jesus remains our center. Now, let me give you some words that are really synonyms today because you have, uh, you have very likely the temptation to hear what I'm saying and only think about like church activity. But nothing could be more personal, personally applicable for you today than understanding this message. So the main point of the message could also be stated this way, that glory comes through obedience when Jesus remains our center. So if you want to make a personal application, every time you hear the word mission, you can also apply it to the word obedience. And I'm going to give you a fuller understanding of that before we're finished today. But I want you to know this not only speaks to our church and and trust me, I've got a burning passion to say a word to LifePoint this morning. But when I say LifePoint, I'm not just talking to a cold, sterile institution. I'm speaking to a people who wear the name of a Savior for a purpose in the world in which we live. And I want you to understand that and to see that, even with a wet sleeve. All right? I'll wet my sleeve any day for that. All right. Deuteronomy 31 I'm excited about this passage. Let's look and just kind of get an overview of where we've been. What we learn is when Moses finishes speaking to the people, 
he finishes his time with them by concluding matters. And here's what he does. He says that Joshua is to succeed Moses. So Moses continued to speak the words to all of Israel. And, and it tells us that he tells all of the people of Israel that are gathered there. And these are the words he speaks to him. Verse 3 says, The Lord your God himself will go over before you. So he's encouraging them. And then listen to these words in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So who does he speak to first? The whole people of Israel. And then in front of all the people, he calls Joshua up in front of them. And he says to Joshua the same words. Be strong and courageous. Verse 7 and following. For you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So he gives the word to all the people. And then he calls Joshua up. And he gives the word specifically to Joshua. And then as he had written all of the law down, he gave the law, the the scrolls if you will, to the priests. And he tells the priest. In verse 12, assemble the people, men, women, boys, girls, the children, the sojourners that are passing through. Assemble them all and regularly read these words from God to them so that they can hear them, so that they can understand them, so that they can learn them, so that they can teach them to their children, and so that they can obey them with their life. And then after he gave that command to the priests, it tells us in verse 16 and following, excuse me, 14 and following. I can't see unless I, can somebody hold this out there so I can see it? So embarrassing to put the glasses on. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. It's interesting to me, we all want to know how many days we have, don't we? I mean, how long am I going to live, you know, until that sentence comes? And then they go, hey, let's not get in a big rush. (laughs) No need to hurry the fact, God, right? And so what did he do? He said, I want you and Joshua to come to the inner sanctum to me. And they came into a private place. And God commissions Joshua with Moses to take the helm and to begin to lead the people in Moses' absence. And he also tells Moses some things that he wants him to communicate in finality for the people. And last week we looked at one of those things. God says, I want you to give up the people a way to remember the words that I've given you to teach to them. And remember what we looked at last week was the song of Moses, which we find in chapter 32. And what we find here is that Moses gives the people a way to remember what God has said. But when he finishes those words in verse 44 of chapter 32, he says, I need you to take these words to heart because the word of God will be the very center of your life. Will be the very center of your life. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. And then they tell all the people that Moses will pass And the last thing Moses does is he pronounces a blessing, chapter 33, upon the people. 
And he begins with uh, kind of a large blessing, an overarching general blessing to the people. But then he begins to break them down tribe by tribe. And he blesses each tribe according to their strengths that God has given to them. And helps them in a very brief way understand how God wants to use them. And he pronounces this blessing throughout the remainder of chapter 33. And then chapter 34 tells us that when he finished his blessing... God called Moses up onto the mountain. And so as the people of Israel had seen Moses do before, they saw him do one last time. He walked up onto the mountain, and God, as he had promised, showed him all of the land that he would give to each of the tribes of Israel. And the Bible says there Moses died and was buried. And then it gives this powerful epitaph of Moses And shows how Joshua was to take the helm and to lead the people. You see, friends, glory comes through mission when Jesus remains our center. What I want you to see today is just simply a response to the question, how do we know that Jesus is our center? How do we know that Jesus is the center of our life? And I think we see very clearly four distinguishing characteristics in these chapters that remind us and show us how we too today can know that Jesus is our center. And if we'll trust Jesus and if we'll follow him, God will shape our lives for glory, for his eternal glory. And so I want us to see that. Here's the first distinguishing characteristic I want you to see. And it's simply this, that strength and courage define us. Strength and courage define us. Now we've already seen in chapter 31 the words that God gave to the people of Israel through Moses and then subsequently spoke to Joshua himself. And he outlines it in this way. Be strong and courageous. He knew the threats that awaited them. Moses knew the people that they would encounter in the new land. He he understood the attacks that would come upon them because they had already fought off two kings before they ever crossed the Jordan River. He understood the suffering that would fall on the people. He knew how they were going to suffer because he knew the moral failures that would arise from within them. He had already told them, you are a stubborn and rebellious people. I love you, but be honest with yourselves. Your heart is prone to wonder. He knew the moral failures that they would encounter. He knew the idolatry, which would be the source of so much of their failure in the land and subsequently the suffering and the consequences that would come out of that. But he did not say to the people, good luck. What did he say? Be strong and courageous. Why? Because strength and courage define us. These are the first words that Moses gave to Israelite and Joshua. But they're also the prevailing message of the New Testament. Anytime that a messenger of God appears, the first words out of that messenger's mouth are, do not fear, do not fear. And you see, if you're going to be strong and courageous in Jesus, fear must be centered in Jesus so that he is the only one that you fear, so that you can receive his strength and his 
courage. This is the prevailing message of God that's given to us today. And friends, the only thing standing between God's power filling you for strength and his command being fulfilled in you is simply your doing it in faith. And hear me, obedience by faith to be brings God's power to do his commands. That's why you need to understand that this statement by Moses was more than just a great command, but rather it was the empowerment not only to be the people that God had called them to be, but to do what he was commanding them to do. Now, before you disagree with me, because you may not understand your own life as a Christian to be strong and courageous, here's what I want you to understand. That he follows it up with, do not fear, the Lord is with us, he will not leave or forsake us. And that these words, friends, these words define Christian strength for living in obedience. These words define Christian strength for living on mission. It doesn't describe our emotions or our feelings about Christianity. Because it wouldn't be very accurate too often, right? It doesn't describe or measure our worth or our value that we place on ourselves so often based on an earthly metrics where we measure whether or not we're successful or where we, whether we measure whether or not we uh, 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 compare to other people. Not talking about that. Not talking about that at all. And neither is it denying the presence of questions and doubts that arise within us. He's not denying the hardships or the struggles or even the threats that surround them all around. But with all of these things in place and even with them all combined, it doesn't change God's command to you. Be strong. And courageous. Let me just give you a little insight, friends. If God didn't command it, it would never be possible of us to be true or to be done by us. The Christian life, friends, demands spiritual strength that only comes from God. Now let me just massage an application in very briefly here. That's why some of you are struggling. You know you love Jesus. You want to follow him. The desire has been put in you to obey. But you often feel shamed because of your failure. And one of the reasons is because you're striving in your own strength to obey. This is a key, especially for young Christians to learn. But I want to tell you, it's not something you ever get over. No matter how mature you become, you may be aware of it, but you'll find yourself often being tripped up by it, trying to do for God in your own strength instead of resting in dependence ultimately upon God. And as long as you strive after God only in your own strength, going, look at me, God, look at me, look what I can do for you, you will find frustration with God because you'll never receive the satisfaction that you know He's promised. This can be destructive. People will live their whole life trying to figure this out, but living in denial of this one thing. What God commands is for us to be, not to do. His command empowers it. And what He commands, He always empowers. You see... If God can get us to rest in the identity of who we are as His children, what we do will be the most natural outflow of obedience 
that we could have imagined. That's why I say strength and courage define us. Not because we feel like we're strong and courageous as Christians. Not because it's always the prevailing reality of how we perform perfectly. But it is the truth of what God has said about us. And friends, I don't know about you. I want God's truth to be true of me more than my feelings about me. More than my own identity and understanding so often of striving after acceptance or the applause of people. I want what God's word says about me to be the first truth in which I live. The Christian life demands spiritual strength that only comes from God. Witnessing creates a lot of fear in people, does it not? So I thought I would use it as an illustration. You don't just find people throwing the gauntlet of the gospel down right in the grocery store line, you know. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I see you on aisle three. Aisle six, yes, I see that hand. Thank you very much. I mean, that doesn't just happen every day in the grocery store line, right? Why? Because, man, you talk about witnessing. Man, people start getting, oh, man, I got so much to do. I got to go. I mean, we start deflecting and deferring and, and just trying to get out. I mean, we're like a cat. It like just got caged. It gets ugly real fast. Why? Well, people describe themselves very infrequently by strong and courageous when it comes to witnessing. But that's exactly what God says about you. Not because the words you use are perfect or the way in which you use them is perfect or the understanding or the definition that you give is is. Uh, uh, perfect, you know, and, and sometimes when we share the gospel with people and they actually pray to receive the gospel, we're like totally shocked. Whoa, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, what, what? Oh, wait, that's what's supposed to happen. Oh, yeah, well, I must have done a good job. And right there we spin on a dime and all of a sudden who we were dependent on in Christ to even share the gospel, we just took the glory from him. But God is gracious to us too. And so this, this fear comes, but not because of what we can do, but but. Friends, rather because of what He wants to do in us and He can do through us. God fills us with His Spirit to obey His commands. And, and specifically in this application, the only way, hear me, the only way you will kill your fear of witnessing is to open your mouth and speak. And let me tell you, there is no fear that can remain when the Spirit empowers you to be a witness. That's why Acts 1.8 says what? You shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall what? Do my witnessing. Uh-uh. Be my witness. You see the order there in which it comes? So I'm just telling you, if you want to kill fear, specifically about witnessing, just open your mouth. Begin to tell someone about the gospel. And I'm going to tell you, all that fear that just like swells up and boils over right before you begin to speak, you can't even find a trace of it when you begin to share. That's what spiritual strength means to us. When strength and courage don't, when strength and courage don't define us, our biggest problem isn't really a lack of ability, but rather just a simple lack of obedience, lack of faith. You say, well, I can't do that. Well, God didn't call you to do it. God called you to let Him do it through you. And the difference there is His ability versus your ability. Your ability means it must come from your strength. His ability means you can just totally depend on faith and it's all on Him. It's all on Him. 
but it's all for him too. Be strong, not do strong. Be strong, not do strong. God doesn't command us to a talent show to demonstrate our feats of, feats of strength. I mean, if he did, I'd be like rolling a frying pan up every week in front of you going, man, God is great, let me show you, right? Just one little problem with that, I can't roll up a frying pan, and so uh, that would be quite a problem. But fear is real because we know we need something more. What do we fear? We fear what we don't know. We fear what we're not capable of overcoming, what we're not strong enough to do. We fear what we don't understand. Why? Because we feel in inferior and so it conjures up fear but when we know that the one who commands us is greater than the fear that dominates us we can trust him by faith to follow and be and become what he's called us to you see God doesn't call us to a talent show of great feats of strength rather God calls us to an altar of worship where we remember and surrender to his mighty power that he might fill us so that he can define us. I'm convinced this is what Paul was drawing from in Ephesians chapter 6 when he's described all the foundational theology of how we are saved and, and the implications of our salvation and what God is doing as a result of that. And what comes at the end of chapter 6 in Ephesians? It's the armor of God. And what does he tell us in verse 10 of Ephesians 6? Finally, he says, be strong. In the Lord. Not in yourself. Be strong in the Lord and in the might of His strength. Friends, the very essence that defines us as Christians in our obedience as well as the church in our mission is simply this. That we fully surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ to fill us and to live in and through us as He wills for us. Spiritual strength comes from Jesus. And so spending time in His Word, being surrounded by His people, and serving His kingdom mission become critical and essential for us. You see, the people in the land, they were not the biggest problem that the Israelites had, though their minds had for 40 years been, been circling around that fear. Right? Because what happened 40 years before? The spies went in. Twelve came out, ten said, they're huge, let's run. And two said, no, we got this, God's going to give it to us. And what did they do? They ran, they ran. And so when they came back, you think some of them weren't still remembering the testimony of the ten, which incidentally weren't with them anymore, but fear has a way of sticking around when we coddle it, right? But the two had said, we've got this. Their voices were still present because God wanted his people to hear that. God calls us to an altar of worship to surrender to his mighty power. And hear me, friends, when Jesus centers us, strength and courage will define us, even though doubts may be present, even though questions might be swirling, even though temptations might be beating against us, and even though threats are surrounding us. Even though adversity awaits, strength and courage from Jesus always comes for His people in obedience and mission for your life. Let's look at the second distinguishing characteristic. Not only does strength and courage define us, 
but God's word unites us. God's word unites us. Look in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 31. What does he say? He tells the priest, assemble the people. And when you assemble them, read these words that I have written in their hearing. Read them to the men, to the women, to the children, to the families. Read them to the sojourners that are all. Bring them together and read the word of God to them. Why? Because it was the word of God that was uniting them. Not only with God, it was his word that identified the people. Remember this from the very beginning of Deuteronomy. What distinguished Christians, or at that time God's people, the Israelites, what distinguished them in the land is that they had a God that spoke. They lived in a land where all the false idols could not speak. And so they proved themselves to be not gods because they couldn't speak. But God proved himself to be true because he spoke to his people. And because he spoke to his people, his word, they identified themselves in relationship with him. But not only did he speak to his people, so God's word unites his people in relationship with him. God's word unites his people in relationship with one another, right? They gathered together to hear the word of God spoke because God showed up when they gathered. Why? Because he was alive and because it was his will to work in the lives of his people and because what he wanted for his people came to full fruition through his word when he spoke to his people. So God's word united his people in relationship with him and in relationship with one another. And God's word united his people in relationship to all the other people in the world. How? Because as they begin to move in, God would give the land to them. And to those who wouldn't refuse them or fight against them, they would actually be brought in. He said, assemble even the sojourners in the land. Bring them in. And let them hear the word of God that they might hear it and understand it, that they might learn it and they might apply it to their own lives. And so God's word united them in relationship with him, in relationship with one another, and in relationship to all the people that were in the land. You see, God's word centered the people in their relationship, just as it does for us today with Jesus. And friends, when we get all center from God's word, we end up all out of whack with everyone and in everything else in the world. But God's word unites his people in his presence for all Moses gives a final emphasis to the people. Look at verse 46. That continues to help us understand how this is true. Chapter 32, verse 46. Remember, he sings the song, and the song is given to help them remember all that he's taught them in his word. And here's what he said. Take to heart. Where is the heart in your life? Well, for us, it's the seat of the emotions. So if we feel something or emote something, we talk about it being the heart. But scripturally, the heart is the center or the core of a person's being. It's where the intellect, the will, and the affections or adorations, emotions of life all center and merge into one. So he says, take to heart. He's saying basically drive these words to the very center, to the deepest depths of your being. Because what? All the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children. You know why God wants us to teach our children his word? Because it gives us better understanding of what he said, right? I mean, who has a child that's over the age of four or five and hadn't had their life riddled by a question from that kid? 
like you're getting all theological and, and stuff with your family going, well, you know, God loves us, and, and you just begin to, to wax eloquently about all you know, and then a little four-year-old shows up and goes, hey, I've got a question, and you go, I don't know the answer to that question. So you run back and you start looking for it, and we start getting emails at the church and calls and going, Pastor, I, I, I need a theological answer. Who for? My four-year-old? You know, I mean, that's why God wants you to teach the Word of God to your children, because they will rock your world with the deepest truths that you've overlooked, but they're going to hit you right between the eyes with. Don't miss the blessing of teaching the Word of God to your children. It'll change the way you read the Bible. Okay, what possible questions could come out of this verse that I need to be ready to answer? (laughs) Right? Command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. But what is that? That they may be careful to do all the words of this law. That's training them. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. That's also when kids go, well, Daddy, you, you don't do that. <laughs> what? I'm teaching you, stop talking back. Right? I mean, you know, again, there's a reason that God wants us to teach our children. Right? It keeps us honest. We get vulnerable, not because we want to, but because kids are always watching. They see through the smoke screen, and there God brings conviction. Careful to do. Friends, this is disciple-making at its earliest and most fundamental level. Just teaching them what it says and how we live that out. And look what verse 47 says. For it is no empty word for you. It's your life. Friends, God's word unites us because it is life from God given to us. God commands his word to be the center of his people's lives. We see one final act of God's word for his people. And here's what it begins in chapter 33 and verse 1. When Moses begins to pronounce his final blessing on the people, he uses the word of God. And here's the phrase that he uses. The Lord came from Sinai. The Lord came from Sinai. It was the originating power to lead God's people. That's what the word of God was. What came from Sinai? The ten words. The ten commandments. The words that God gave to Moses to give to the people. And the whole of Moses' ministry is explaining, applying, re-explaining and reapplying continually to the people to show them they weren't God, but there was a God who loved them and they should look to him for their salvation and for their salvation alone. I love this phrase. Here's what one commentator says about it. This phrase is the transcendent power of Yahweh is acclaimed by reference to Sinai. The occasion when the awesome cosmic power of Yahweh was demonstrated and as the place from which Yahweh marched forth victoriously at the head of his heavenly host and his mobilized earthly people. When God burst out of the mountain to lead his people at Sinai, 
It was his word that he brought out. There was a volcano that erupted in South America just a few weeks ago, and they put some video on the internet about it. And if you saw it, this volcano, uh, the picture, the video is from, I don't know, miles away, but it feels like it's right next to it because it's just spewing lava straight up hundreds of feet into the air, and you can't see the sky because it's just billowing large large clouds of ash and lava all through the sky. And that's the imagery that we see when Moses begins the blessing. And he says, the Lord has come from Sinai. And it's his word that's just billowed out and spewed over all the earth. And God's planning to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea with the glory that is his alone as his word leads his people forth. This is the phrase that Deborah uses in Judges 5 when she's about to lead the Israelites into battle. This is the phrase that the psalmist uses in Psalm 67 when he wants to talk about God is our victorious war. He's the one that goes before us. He leads us. He fights for us. He wins and he delivers the victory to us. So when God said the Lord comes from Sinai and he told Moses to bless the people with it, this wasn't just trite religion. These weren't empty, vain words. They were a declaration of victory behind the shadow of which the people could walk in full confidence of what God wanted to do, not only for them, but in their lives as well. Friends, God's word is his transcendent power that displays his cosmic rule to lead his people in both obedience and in mission. Some would say, yes, but aren't Christians led by the Holy Spirit today? They absolutely are. And let me tell you this. Some of you may be starving the Holy Spirit because there's not an ounce of God's Word in you for Him to feed on and to work with. The Holy Spirit will not work where God's, the seed of His Word has not been planted. The Spirit does not work except in accordance with the Word of God. He does not work counter to the Word. He does not work around the Word. And any work He does will be to bring the Word into your life, to illuminate it, to explain it, to bring it to full application, and then just to multiply it over and over and over again. Absolutely the Holy Spirit is the one that leads us today and he leads us through the active cultivation of God's word in us to bring a greater spiritual harvest through us. Moses' command that God's word is our very life. He, we, we see in John 1 that, that this word that God has given becomes flesh and dwells among us. It's Jesus himself. He is the word of God that is life in us. And listen, friends, when we see this, uh, I've heard it said that because of Jesus, you know, we, we don't have to depend upon the Bible as much. We can just understand what Jesus did. And I went, oh, okay, good. How did he do that? Well, he did it this way. How do you know that? Well, it says, in, oh, oh, so you went back to the Bible. Or you conjured something up yourself. Well, Jesus wouldn't do that. Why not? It's always bringing us back. You see, the fact that Jesus is the word of life does not negate our need for the Bible. Rather, it necessitates it. Because it's through the Bible that Jesus and all that he is and all that he does for us is revealed to us. 
And that's what Moses is getting at, and that's what we need to drive home deeply today, that God's Word unites us. The only way to know a deepening relationship with Jesus begins in God's Word, reading it and meditating on it and memorizing it and studying it, listening to it read and preached and sharing it. These form the practices that build relationship with Jesus by interacting with the Bible. That's how essential it is for us. And friends, here's what Moses says. And here's how we should see the value of the Bible for us because of that. These are not empty words. That's potent. You know, we have all kind of apps and bracelets that we can wear today that measure our steps. You know, like, man, I took a bunch of steps today. I'm, I'm shredding this body down, you know. I, I, I got my exercise today. I put all the good into it. And, man, I don't want one of those watches. You know how much shame and condemnation that must bring? You kidding me? I'm running from that. But what if we had an app? I, that's a joke. Please understand that. It's not a funny joke even. It's, never mind. What if there was an app? To count our words. And if that app were capable. Not only to count them. But to measure them. Ouch. Now that's meddling. Right? Let's measure not meddle. How many of those words. Spoken every day in your life. Would really be empty. I mean if. If you never heard them again, if you never spoke them again, it wouldn't really hurt anything. And many of them, if you never spoke them or heard them again, it'd actually help, right? Moses says these are not empty words. There's not a word in here that is not packed with the potency of life-giving power from God. These are not empty words they are your very life God's word unites us Christians are people who are uniquely defined by our message the message that we learn through the word of God the message that in the beginning God that he loved us and he promised that he would send someone to show us and to save us from what he had already shown us, our sinfulness. And he showed us how to relate to him and how to know him. And, and then he sent that person, and that person was himself, his only begotten son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. And, and in him we have not only, not only forgiveness, but something more than that. We're not just saved as a slave, but we're made a son. And we're blessed beyond all imagination and empowered to do and not only empowered to do but to be used in the earth for his honor and for his glory so that at his time and in his way and for his glory when he returns we will not only be with him but we will rule for all eternity with him Christians are a people uniquely distinguished by our message if we don't have our message, we have nothing. If we don't have our message, we are nothing. 
We are nothing. But we do have our message. And because we have our message, our commission remains clear. This is not a message that we can lock in a bottle and put in a closet. It is good news that must go forth. And so our message drives us and consumes us to send us in our mission. And that's the third way we know Jesus is centering us. You ready? Mission happies us. Mission happies us. Now, I'm not going to have to do linguistic gymnastics to get to the word happy. I've had to do that before. And I don't really like to do it. But sometimes there's just a word I feel like I need to use. But this word just comes straight out of scriptures. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Turn back to chapter 33. And the last four verses of chapter 33, Moses has pronounced his blessing upon the people tribe by tribe. And verse 29, he finalizes his blessing by saying this, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Look at me, friends. Happy are you. Mission, obedience, happies us. Happiness in life will never come outside of following God on mission. And happiness without God is futile. Happiness with God but absent of mission becomes idolatry and really begging us, or be, us begging God for discipline. How do we know this? Well, let me just give you a very brief testimony that the man in this uh, the history of humanity that was the wisest, that was the wealthiest, and had more wives than most any other. So power, sex, and money were readily available with no even conception of ending to any point. Everything that the world promised as pleasurable and satisfying to us was fully at the reach and the disposal of this individual. And do you know what he said about all of it? It's futile. It's futile. You can have it all and not have it at all. That's what he tells us. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, he may be right, but I at least like a shot at it. You know? I mean, that, that's, what, that's what sin is saying to all of us. Well, I don't even need as much as he had. You know, just a little bit would be fine with me. But the point is this. It never satisfies. Because happiness without God will not last. And any way in which we try to use God for our happiness but avert his mission or avert the parts of obedience we don't like simply becomes idolatry. We've assigned his name onto something that we want to call it and we've made it something altogether different. And if we are genuinely a believer, we're just begging God for discipline. That's exactly what the Israelites did when they walked into the promised land because Moses has said to them, as God will say to them, you walked in, you took every blessing that I gave to you, you even used it for your full indulgence and got fat off of it you loved it you got drunk off the wine but you forgot about me you took the blessing that I gave you and you cursed me with it 
That's what God said to him. We're no different, friends. Anytime we try to live outside of God's will, outside of obedience, outside of mission, it never lasts. It never works. And it even leads us to greater condemnation and shame. Happiness with God always means living in His mission. You see, the world beats upon us with these promises of happiness behind every door. Our heart even looks for those happinesses in many different ways. In relationships, in indulgences, in accomplishments and achievements, and even some with addiction. And as long as happiness remains a present experience, as long as it remains defined for you by an immediate emotion or a momentary pleasure, you can expect that it will never last, that it will always disappoint, and that it will lead you to destruction. You see, true happiness in life only comes from one source, and that's the happy maker, Jesus Christ. And it only comes along His pathway leading to holiness. You can aim for happiness... And whatever you get will be a fleeting grasp, but you'll always miss holiness. You can aim for holiness and you'll find happiness blessing you all along the way. All along the way. We are made happy by God because we've been filled by His presence. And we know, and when when He makes us happy, we know that our identity rests only in Him. So if we fail, we're not crushed by it. If we succeed, we don't expect others to worship us because of it. We live in His continual protection and provision. That's that's what Moses was saying. You're going to be happy if you just trust Him and, and you'll enjoy what He gives to you, but for the reasons that He gave it to you. And we're aligned with Him by His Word to experience Him in increasing You see, mission simply means living by faith in relationship with God to obey His commands and to teach them to others. So often in church life, and quite frankly, I'm as guilty as anyone, and so I'm not pointing fingers at you. I'm really pointing fingers at church leaders, but the whole congregation is responsible for it. We really reduce mission when we try to elevate it to a lot of activity. And mission is not absent of activity. It's just not defined by it. Really what mission is at its most fundamental level is the people of God believing the word of God by faith in the Son of God to just be obedient to God. And if we would do that, mission would be no problem. Why? Because we would be what God has created and redeemed us to be and the outflow of our being would be to do what God's called us to do. We would know him so intimately there wouldn't be a person in the world that we couldn't wait to share the gospel with, that we wanted to tell them about Christ, that we would love them not at our own expense but sacrificially to do whatever needed to be done to bring them into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And immediately some of you are thinking, so you want me to be Billy Graham? No, no, I just want you to be you. Friends, not even Billy Graham can bring glory to God from your life. God created you to be you. And as long as you worship you and not God, God can't get glory from you. But if you will submit your life, repent of your sins He will redeem you. He will save you. And He will bring glory from you that you could have never imagined. All for His name. You see, Christian mission simply means obedience and and disciple making in multiplying manner. You say, well, how does happy come from mission? 
let me go back to the word here. God, God didn't tell the people to take over the land. He told them to take it, right? But we know in our language, what does that mean? Because he said, I'm going to conquer these people for you and give this land to you, right? So their taking it wasn't because they dominated and won. It was because, hey, when they arrived, the game was over and it was the award ceremony and they got their name called, right? I mean, they, they like got there and the land was delivered to them. That's what God was talking about with them. And so he commanded them to take or receive what he had already done for them in giving them the land. And what God did command was for the people to have their lives taken over by receiving his word as their life. You see, obedience in the individual Christian's heart fuels disciple-making or maturing and growth in relationships among God's people that creates for us and among us an ethos of evangelizing all people from every nation in the world. Go all the way back to chapter 31, and when Moses instructed the priests to assemble the people who was included in that assembly not just the men and the women and the children and the families but bring the sojourner in listen friends God's inviting the nations to his throne God's calling all people from every nation tribe and tongue to gather at his throne and he's calling them for you and through me and through his church in the world today and if we will listen to him and we will trust him and we will be what he has redeemed us to be the nations will come and they will worship him at his feet alongside us. It was the glory of God that would take over the promised land. As the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk tells us. And it's the glory of God that will cover the earth, even today, if God's people will surrender their lives and do what God's called them to do. Because they are living as God has commanded them and empowered them to be. The fourth characteristic. Strength and courage define us. God's word unites us. Mission happies us. Number four, leadership remains priority for us. These last four chapters really show us Joshua's commissioning to lead. Moses writes the song, he blesses the people, he commissions Joshua, and and then he goes up. And you see, leadership is not new to our day, friends. Leadership by its very design is from God. He's always raised up a leader for his people. We see two powerful models in not only Moses, but also Joshua as leaders in this passage. First of all, Moses was a leader like none other. That's what his epitaph tells us. It records that his eye was undimmed and his vigor was unabated. There was never, there's never been one like him since he died uh, that, that he related to God face to face. What a powerful, powerful testimony of his leadership. But have you ever thought about the longevity of leadership? Leadership is the only practice in which you can continually grow and excel and mature your entire life. You see, your skills and your abilities will find the end of your ableness. You don't believe me? You know, like if you're younger and you hit 30, you'll realize, oh, hmm, maybe my abilities have a lifespan. And then 35 and then 40 and then 45 and unless it's not going to get any better. But leadership never ceases to grow and mature. We see this in the life of Moses. That's what Moses teaches us as a model. 
You see, his final ascent onto the mountain formed most likely his most powerful model of leadership for the people. Like I said a while ago, none of us, you know, we all, want, we all think we want to know how many days our life will actually include. But when the last day comes and says, and God says, today's your day. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not get in a big rush, God, right? But what did Moses say? He'd spent time with God. He said, God, please let me enter the, the promised land. God said, you're not going in. You sinned against me and your consequences that you will not end. I'll show it to you, but you will not enter it. The people knew this. Moses had told them. And probably with a tinge of bitterness. Because of you people, I'm not getting to go in. You know, And that's what he had said to them. But when it came down to it, and he said, God's told me today's the day I'm going to die. The last thing they saw him do was walk confidently into the arms of God. You ever seen a Christian who'd loved and served Jesus a long time pass? It is the most peaceful, confident, establishing testimony. And that's what Moses did one last time. Moses' life was lived between mountaintops experiences. He was up on top of Sinai when he was herding sheep for his father-in-law. And God spoke to him in a burning bush. He went from that burning bush, took the people out of Egypt, came right back to that same mountain. God called him up to that mountain. People watched him go. And when he came down, he brought the word of God to them. And the last time they saw him, he was walking into the arms of God. That was his most powerful moment with the people. If there's anything that is potent, if there's any model of leading that is unmatched, it is how we handle death. And Moses, he ascended with confidence, full assurance and faith. Leadership is worthy of our full investment and our first priority because it is the one practice that lasts a lifetime. Do you know why this is? Because leadership depends not on the strength of life, but on the strength of our being. Leadership demands character. Leadership demands character. And character determines leadership. You see, some never lead because their character never matures to strengthen their life for it. So they live all their life and they have no element of their life wherein they have led and then when character is growing and maturing, a position is not needed to validate one's leadership. So those who are maturing and developing into what we would consider leaders, they don't wait for a position to affirm them. They lead from where they are. And so they demonstrate their character from where God has placed them. So the strength of true leadership is built on character, not position, not prominence, not fame or riches. Too often we reduce leadership just to a position. And even the world, the secular business world tells us the weakest position, or the weakest form of leadership is positional leadership. I lead because I'm in the place that says I have to lead. It's the weakest form of all of them. 
But it also leads us to our second leadership model, and that's Joshua. He thrived as a leader long before he was placed into a position of prominence. As a matter of fact, when he gave his testimony and he was faithful to God, it cost him 40 more years before he would be able to lead. But you see, Joshua wasn't looking at leadership as a position. He was looking at it as a demonstration of his being, of his character. And what God was doing within him. And so he remained faithful. His character was growing and maturing for 40 years before God positioned him. And here's what Deuteronomy 34, 9 says. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. Joshua demonstrated leadership long before and with no guarantee of that he would be positioned as Israel's leader. And See, we have trouble understanding this principle of true leadership today. We don't want a leader. We demand a functional savior too often from our leaders, especially in the church. We put them on a pedestal and then we act shocked when they fall. We, we want someone who can deliver us from our mess. Or we want someone that we can blame when we're disappointed or things fail to satisfy us. And let me turn the coin to the leadership of churches too often. Many want no responsibility for people. Look, you just come and listen to me. I don't really want to have anything to do with you. Right? And we put up with that. But that's not leadership according to to what God says. We want, uh, too many leaders want no responsibility for others. They just want to be worshipped by others. But these are perversions. You see, Jesus provides for us the perfect model of leadership. And he, in his model of leadership, shows nothing short of sacrifice for people unto death. He's the head. He's the chief shepherd. He is the ruling Lord and he's the reigning king. No one needs to do his job because he has perfectly done it. But, friends, but. God provides human leaders in order to lead God's people. And usually, usually the human leaders are the weakest of all. Lead pastors are the most insecure people in the world. I can't believe I just said that. But it's true. It's true. Because I don't think God wants his people following someone for their oneness. I think he just wants people to follow a leader so that they can learn to depend upon him. So hear me, true leaders are worthy of your highest honor, but only Jesus is worthy of your worship. Only Jesus is worthy of your worship. Here's the reason leadership remains a priority for us. God ordains leadership and no man knows his hour. I read an article about a week ago of a pastor who was preaching. And he said in the sermon to his, to his congregation, he said, Whenever God chooses to take me, I'm ready. And I'm not making a joke. I'm not making this up. A few minutes later in his sermon, he dropped dead. Right there. God ordains leadership. And no man knows his hour. The second reason it remains a priority for us is because the investment in building leaders demands a whole life and it lasts a whole life. There's no greater investment in people that we can make, that we can uh, accept to teach, to train, to equip them, to grow and to mature all of their life for, for maturity in Christ. And friends, I've said this time and time again to you as a church and I'll say it again. This church is a training ground for people, for leaders. 
It's a place where leaders can learn to lead in the right way. And this never stops. And yes, the inconvenience of it causes and, and often creates among the church uh, uh, um, uh, either frustrations or uncertainties or questions. And it's not because of leadership, but too often it's because of uh, uh, remaining uh, competing agendas. And I don't even mean that in a bad way. I just mean it's through the practice of making disciples that we realize, man, we've got some things to take care of here. Quite frankly, that scares me and excites me, both at the same time, and I don't really know how to feel about it. We train leaders because it causes us to grow and mature. You want to grow up in your faith? Start discipling somebody and telling them how to follow Jesus. And your words will just begin to trip all over themselves. But I'm going to tell you what, there will never be a time that you will grow more in your own life. The third reason that leadership development will remain a priority for us is because character building begins at the very beginning and it lasts all throughout the life. Let's put our hands on young men and young women and let's commission them to serve God with their life. Let's be a people, church, that champions and celebrates raising up young people to lay down and die for the sake of Christ. It's the single greatest internal eternal investment that we can make. And shouldn't leaders, especially young developing leaders, but all leaders, I don't care what your age is when I say young, I just mean early on in the process, shouldn't all of them have a place that is grace-filled to be able to fail when their life's not fully dependent on it so that they can learn from those failures, mature until God raises them up for a cause. I believe that that's what the church is all about and hence what we should be about. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. So how do I end a series like this? Well, here's how I'll end it. Glory comes through mission when Jesus remains our center. Where does your life need to be centered on Jesus today? Where's the Spirit of God speaking to you? Where is He leading you? What is He saying to you? I want us as a church to move forward in mission and to watch God through us literally push back darkness. But listen, friends, our challenge is not to get excited and go do something for God. Rather, our challenge is this, is to fully surrender to how God wants to work in us and to use us. So the invitation is simple. Where is God speaking? And how do you need to surrender? What is He saying to you today? What is the Spirit speaking to you about? Do you need to turn from your sin? Do you need to confess and repent your sin to Christ and let Him forgive you? Let Him take over lordship of your life and and, and let Him begin to determine your steps, to begin to live by faith so that you can be what God's called you to be. Maybe you're here today and you go, Pastor, I'm living in every way that I know I'm supposed to be living by faith and trusting Jesus. But I feel like he's saying something more to me today. God calling you forward? Calling you forward in the sense of following him and, and, and maybe trying something new? 
Maybe leading you to a place that you believe he's been calling you to, but now you're beginning to see what it looks like and how. Maybe it's a position of leadership. Remember, that's not a, a, a vertical position, it's just a forward step of faith. And you say, I, I know God wants me to help out and serve in our community group. I, I think God wants me to start getting trained to lead a community group. I, I think God wants me to do this or God wants me to do that. Listen, doing will always be included, but it's not about your doing. It's about what God wants you to be within it. That's what he'll teach you. Where will you surrender? Where is God speaking to you, calling to you to surrender your own agenda, your own everything, and simply say, God, I know this is what you want for me. I have no idea how it's about to come out. But that's okay. We'll have fun walking through it together. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond to the Lord in song. Lord Jesus, help us this morning. Help us to surrender any competing agendas, any constraining ideas or understanding. Anything that thwarts your perfect will coming to full fruition in us. Bring a spiritual harvest from us today because of what you're doing in us. For that one today who's listening to you now but needs to take that step to follow you. God, I pray for strength and courage. I pray that their fear would be consumed in you and all other fears wasted away. Because their singular singular focus because they're centering their life on you to bring glory to you in their life. Do that even now, Lord Jesus. Let's stand together and let's respond to the Lord. And you come if you want prayer or counsel. Let's respond to the Lord.